0: is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company today. I'd like to hear from you. The number is 0487 993 to send me a text message. I'd like to hear from you. We'll be talking about the low price of sheep meat at the moment towards one o'clock and are you disaster ready there's a few fires getting around Queensland and expectations that there could be a few more to come I'll give you the latest details on the fire near Jalago around Townsville we'll also talk about what you might want to be thinking about when it comes to getting ready for the season yourself and you'll meet the Sherlock Holmes of food
2: So we can verify back to a a specific fishery where a prawn has come from. Uh, So what we then do is we actually go into retail and into supply chains and take covert samples and then check, you know, are they true to the claim, which is often, is it Australian first? And then which fishery has it come from? And so I'm pleased to say that that wild Australian prawn supply chain is of very high integrity.
1: How you can use forensics to track the provenance of food. You'll hear that. Before half past 12 here at the Queensland Country Hour. But first today, tens of thousands of cattle in northern Australia are no longer suited to the live export trade with Indonesia, with exporters told not to ship any stock with skin lesions. After raising concerns about lumpy skin disease, Indonesia lifted its suspensions on Australia's live cattle and buffalo trade earlier this month, but only after striking a deal with Australia, which included several new biosecurity requirements. Ashley James loaded a shipment out of Darwin on the weekend. He says it meant cattle that normally could be sent had to be rejected.
3: So this made it really difficult on station. We kicked out. 30 to 40 percent of cattle that was presented to us which six, six months ago wouldn't have been a problem going on the boat um, and that's why I thank all the vendors that sold to us because I know it wasn't easy um, it's not easy for the exporter either uh, but unfortunately we just have to abide by these rules until the two governments can work out a plan of attack for future shipments.
4: Right, so you've gone to stations to get cattle for your boat, and have had to reject thirty to forty percent of them because of skin lesions.
3: Yeah, that's correct, Matt. Under the current policy, so ASAL, which is I guess the bible for exporting, nothing's changed there. So the grey area is still, still an unknown. But unfortunately, we've had to go hard on station for any lesions because what we can't afford is to have, you know, 100, 200, 300 cattle sitting in a quarantine with nowhere to go um, because really they don't have any commercial value once, once they've been kicked out by the department's vets.
4: And so you, your experience actually involved having a handful of cattle that were rejected by the vet. How did that unfold and what happened?
3: Yeah, so once the cattle came into the quarantine, the quarantine then runs an eye over them as they come off trucks. They picked out another seven or eight of the cattle coming off that they thought might have a problem. So they were then penned up um, in a separate yard. Uh, We were able to get the quarantine, uh, the government vet to run her eyes over them, of which she was okay with, you know, five of them, and then there were two there that she didn't like, so they were rejected from the shipment.
4: And what do you do with them? Uh,
3: there's not a lot we can do with them, Matt. I guess they're going to go down to bachelor if the abattoir will take them. And what's
4: classed as a skin lesion?
3: Uh, this is the grey area. Yeah. So it can, you know, any right as far as can be a cut, um, ringworm. Part of the difficulty is that anything raised on the skin um, is questionable, and then it comes down. Then the grey area is well, is it getting better or is it getting worse? Um, the hope is that you know, if there's hair starting to grow through the lesion, then they'll accept them. But that's a risky if you're drafting and you know, you're you're leaving cattle in because you think there's a bit of hair coming through, um, you know, you might get caught with them. They they might be the 50-50 cattle in quarantine.
4: I think it's important in an interview like this to to, to maybe reset and say that Australia does not have lumpy skin disease. But uh, certainly the, the trade with Indonesia, it just sounds tricky at the moment, Ashley James. What would be your take on how many cattle are in northern Australia right now that have suddenly... Fallen out of spec for the live trade to window.
3: Oh man, it'd be thousands. Um, I mean, we 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 only loaded a little shipment of twelve hundred cattle, of which all up we on property we rejected four to five hundred of them um, to get the twelve hundred. So if you work those numbers out, it's not pretty.
4: And what would be your advice to cattle producers who are mustering and looking to sell stock into the live export trade like they've always done?
3: Well, if I think they're just going to have to take this on the chin in the short term as exporters are having to do um I know it's I know it's no fun, but it's one of the things that we have you know we have to face um, and I can't see it changing in at least the next couple of months, so we'll see what the floodpla what the floodplain brings um, and what our governments can work out and hopefully. It'll be relaxed um, as we get towards the end of the year.
1: Ashley James, the General Manager of the live export company NACC, speaking to Matt Bran. It's 12 past 12.
0: The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Now, there's a near record number of Pacific Islanders in Australia working on farms and abattoirs as part of the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, the PALM Scheme, also known as our Seasonal Worker Program. Now, it's kept Australia's agricultural economy afloat in times when it's been hard to find workers. And it has transformed the lives of thousands of people in the Pacific Islands. But it does come at a cost, as Marian Kupu reports.
5: From parties and weddings to nearly one million plays on YouTube, it's one of Fiji's biggest songs of the year. It's called "Ilavo Ni Ozi Ilavo Mosi Mosi," or in English, "The Ozi Dollar is a painful dollar." and it's dedicated to the thousands of Pacific Island workers in Australia.
6: He wants to support, support uh, our families and uh, especially, uh, especially our children.
5: For Nai Misipeka, the song is her reality. In a small village just outside of the capital, Silva, she's bringing her five children up alone. Her husband Johnny is finishing his first year working at an upper tour in regional Western Australia, and he has another three years to go.
6: We miss him uh, a lot, uh, especially when I'm uh, looking after my children, and uh, uh, especially going to the farming when uh, pull the cassava, because uh, he always uh, help us.
5: Johnny's work in Australia supports the family. He's paid much more than he would in Fiji, and they've been able to afford a new washing machine. But their only contact is through phone calls at night, and that's when things get emotional.
6: Sometimes uh, he feels tears, and he uh, look after us. Eh? When uh, he calls us, uh, how, about all the ch- how about the children? And uh, I say, oh, the children are sleeping. He feels uh, feel emotion. More than 38,000
5: Pacific Islanders are working in Australia under the scheme. Vanuatu leads the way, followed by Tonga, where a massive 6% of the nation's total population have signed up. And in small nations like Tonga, the scheme is having a major impact on the local economy. Hotel manager Jason Strickland says he's struggling to find and keep staff.
7: My turnover is too numerous to count and um, it's not equated to poor management, it's equated to people leaving overseas in in big groups. I I say this jokingly, but if uh, someone uh, comes in off the street with one arm and a criminal record, the likelihood is I would
5: probably employ them. That's how critical the labour crisis is at the moment. The labour shortage in Tonga has extended to the local hospital. Nurse manager Melene Felice says that some are opting to work picking fruits in Australia simply because the money is better. Quite a few have gone on seasonal workers. The scheme has helped workers build new lives back home. Yet, as the numbers grow, some Pacific leaders argue their countries are turning into outposts to grow labourers for developed nations, such as Australia. It's an argument Australia's Minister for the Pacific Pat Conroy rejects.
8: I think it's the ultimate win-win. Uh, Australia benefits from having uh, our labour shortages filled by some of our closest neighbours. Uh, the workers win.
5: Back in Fiji, Elavo Ni illavo mosimosi Mosi Mosi is being sung every day across the country. And the songwriter Josetta Vitaokura who himself has worked in Australia has a message for Fijians thinking of home. This is my only message to the Pacific Islanders. Uh,
9: for those of you who want to go to Australia and uh, work there, you have to follow the rules. Uh, you have to go and work hard. Whatever problem you face, uh, you have to face it. Uh, you have to be
5: shorter so that you can get a lot of money and uh, make your family happy. A lucrative dollar, but a painful one.
1: Marion Kupu reporting from Fiji. Meanwhile, in Vanuatu, the new Prime Minister, Sato Kilman Livtuvanu, says overseas seasonal work is an issue he plans to raise with Australia and New Zealand. He thinks one solution to end local worker shortages may be to cap the number of those participating in the international scheme. Here's the ABC's reporter in Port Villa, Jamie Brown.
10: Thousands of new have left the country for work in Australia and New Zealand, attracted by larger incomes that can support their families and pay for new houses back on their home island. While the labour mobility schemes are popular with workers, they become point of controversy in Fonotu politics. Fonotu MPs are concerned it's straining the economy of workers and that shortage of both skilled and unskilled workers is hitting tourism, agriculture, transport and other sectors. The former opposition voted in Parliament last month to remove the previous Prime Minister, Ishmael kalsakao Mokoro, partly over his handling of labour mobility and its impact on the Vanuatu economy. Prime Minister Sato Kilman Alifton-Vanu says obviously his work is holding a Vanuatu back.
9: Because basically, when I'm me, I mean What I'm it saying. basically means is that we won't have workers left in Vanuatu. When we talk about development, who's going to do it? We need a workforce oh, in, the in the country. country.
10: Mr. Kilman says he wants to raise the issue with Australia and New Zealand.
9: But, but need to talk with them, Australia. We will but talk with Australia and New Zealand. Zealand. They still want more people to grow.
10: Vanuatu contributes the most workers to labour schemes among Pacific Island nations, accounting for about 35% of all workers in one recent estimate from the Development Policy Centre. There are almost 10,000 workers in Australia alone. While the government hasn't settled on any plan to address the issue yet, Mr. Kilman suggested limiting the number of to workers taking part in the labor mobility scheme could help.
9: We will help them, but on the flip side, it handicaps us. So while it's a good program, it brings more money into the country, and we give experience to our workers and expose them to different environments... It's important it doesn't disadvantage us.
10: Another change in direction is likely on Vanuatu's security pact with Australia, after Mr. Kilman indicated he would revisit the agreement. But Mr. Kilman denies that he leads a more pro-China government or that he will draw his nation closer to China over Australia.
9: Vanuatu, since independence, one stand Vanuatu, since independence, has a non-aligned stance. We might not follow it to the letter, but it's the basis of our foreign policy. It means we treat all our diplomatic partners the same.
1: Vanuatu's Prime Minister, Saito Kilman, lived to Vanu, ending that report from Jamie Brown in Vanuatu. It's 20 past 12. This is the Queensland Country Hour. It's definitely an issue to keep an eye on. It seems those voices in the Pacific with issues with the PALM scheme getting louder. Do you have any concerns about what it might mean For Labor in your part of Queensland, 0487 993 222 is the number to send me a text. Are you worried that the Palm Scheme isn't working for the Pacific Islands and what that might mean for the availability of workers? 0487
0: 993 On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour.
1: A weather update in about 15 minutes time and I will also give you the latest detail on the fire in the Jalago and Gnome areas around Townsville. It's been wor- burning for quite some time. There is still a watch and act in place. So I'll give you the latest details in about 10 minutes time. But for now, what about the science behind where your seafood comes from? There's a company from Western Australia that's being used to verify the provenance of certain seafood products that are being sold in Australia. They use crime-fighting technology to figure out if prawns were really caught where the label says they were caught. They've been hired to figure out if grain sold by Russia on the global market was really grown in Ukraine. The company is called Source Certain and the founder director is Cameron Scatting. He says demand for the service from the ag industry is on the rise.
2: I think agriculture has had a 10-year head start to some extent when you look across the other sort of verticals we work in, which can range from minerals and metals to things like diamonds. The mineral sector in particular you know, hasn't had to contend with a lot of the requirements around the, the traceability of products, whereas agriculture has. And so what we're seeing in agriculture is a rapid um, rise in, in things like sustainability claims, so the how Um, products might have been grown or made. Um, Underneath the how is obviously the where, and, and that's what we do. And so we're definitely seeing an increase in demand um, around services that we offer. Uh, in terms of the why, I, I think there's a there's a few um, reasons for that. One of them is consumers. I think consumers are definitely more aware of the impact that their purchase has on not just the planet, but also the people that are inside the supply chain. I think the other driver is regulatory and, and obviously that's linked to consumers or the general public, but we're seeing sort of unprecedented intervention from regulators around the world trying to stop you know, damage to the planet such as rainforests and, and they're doing that with, with regulatory intervention around transparency which is the where products have come from.
8: Let's just take a few examples of what you've been working on. You've been asked to check where some grain has been grown. This is grain that ended up in Turkey but it's a project involving the UK government. What's the story?
2: We've been working um, around grain for sort of 6 to 12 months now. Um, one of the, the use cases is you know, grain that is hitting the international markets and has it come from, for example, Ukraine or Russia? And so we've been working in that area for for six months. I I didn't expect that grain would be something that we're working on, but um, as we see these types of geopolitical issues arise, we're certainly seeing a number of countries around the world more engaged and interested in knowing um, where these products are coming from. Uh, We're seeing that sort of emerge uh, into a broader um, service offering around... You know grains generally and so Australia has a, a popular um, green image which is related to the, the how but also the scale at which we grow our grain here um, and we're seeing engagement not just from farmers but also international markets to be able to verify provenance of grains including from, from Australia.
8: So I gather the interest with the grain that you're looking at is trying to prove as to whether it's been stolen, <laughs> whether it was grown in Ukraine and And stolen by Russia and and sold as its own.
2: It's a really really challenging topic and I know that when we first um, talked about this work that some of the questions that came about was you know some of the countries where this grain ends up you know obviously it's a key part of their food security and sort of our response to that and my response to that is is that you know we're not trying to take food off the table for these countries but I think it's really important that when certainly countries or or companies especially large supply chain companies make decisions about the commodities that they buy that they can trust in the information they're provided and that includes country of origin or being able to identify a product that that has certainly an integrity back to where it's been grown and obviously with the tension associated with Russia and Ukraine there's a lot of pressure on that global commodity supply chain.
8: Is this forensic science able to be applied to the seafood industry? Because the prawns and the fish they move.
2: <laughs> yes, uh, it certainly can, and I'm. I think probably the seafood sector is probably our most mature offering. Uh, so we have a, a long-standing service in place with Australian wild prawns, which are the ones fished out of the ocean. So we can verify back to a, a specific fishery where a prawn has come from. Uh, So what we then do is we actually go into retail and into supply chains and take covert samples and then check, you know, are they true to the claim, which is often, is it Australian first? And then which fishery has it come from? And so I'm pleased to say that that wild Australian prawn supply chain is of very high integrity. I mean, that's obviously as a result of the commitment by industry, firstly, but also the work that we've done there. So when when you go into a supermarket and see, for example, a... MSC which is a sustainably certified prawn you can actually trust that it's actually come from that particular fishery we also work in uh, fish species such as um, snapper but also barramundi uh, all of which are subject to or at risk of substitution with imported um, products like I said really really mature service offering for us Uh, still lots of work to do but but seafood is certainly taking a leadership role there.
8: How on earth can you prove it, though? As I said, you know, these animals are moving around all over the place, changing their location.
2: Yeah, so it depends on the the product type. And so in the examples of prawns, they do move around, but it is limited or constrained to the fishery typically that they are in. So as part of that program, as an example, we actually collect samples from all of those locations throughout the year and we actually map or determine the fingerprint for those particular locations that's what gives us the capability to then go into the stores and take the covert purchases. It's
8: starting to make a bit more sense now that you've said fingerprint is it almost a bit like DNA testing as well?
2: Yes, yeah, it's similar. So DNA profiling, which obviously from a forensic science perspective, it was kind of made famous by lots of those kind of CSI type shows. It's, it is similar. So DNA is a, it's effectively a matching, right? Is, is that profile the same as? It's not dissimilar to that, except we, we measure a whole heap of chemicals. Um, that includes molecules, but also elements and isotopes. And we build from those measurements what is quite a complicated, um, extensive profile, which we call a fingerprint, that profile can then be compared to products off the shelf.
1: Cameron Scadding, it's fascinating work. He's a director of Source Certain, speaking to Richard Hudson. It's 27 past 12. This is the Queensland Country Hour. And the National Chemical Regulator has banned the use of pesticide dimethoate as a post-harvest dip in tropical fruit like mangoes and avocados. The APVMA flagged the suspension earlier this year and has today, just this morning, made it official, publishing a notice of suspension in its gazette. But the suspension comes as Darwin's mango harvest starts to ramp up. APVMA Acting Chief Executive Dr Melissa McEwen explains the decision to Dan Fitzgerald.
11: So we've made the decision because it has been, there have been detections of exceedances of the maximum residue limit in dimethowate in um, tropical fruit. This, what this means is that there's a potential human health risk from those exceedances, um, maximum residue levels are set at a level where there is a tolerance um, gap, but by having having um, the amount of residue remaining in the fruit exceed that, it does start to begin to eat away at that gap between that sort of safety margin. And so it's important that we continue to prioritise that um, human health in making decisions about the use of chemicals.
4: Was the APVMA seeing a lot of exceedance in like in terms of number of cases?
11: So we received a number of reports of cases out of um, testing before retail sale. Um, what we then do is go back and have a look at the science to see whether the use of um, dimethylate, in which ways using it, is likely to actually cause the exceedances. And um, what our res- research and what are. Um, investigation determined was that they were most likely caused not by all uses of dimethoate but particularly by post-harvest dipping so there are a number of other approaches to the use of dimethoate um, pre-harvest and so forth that can continue but this one um, this one approach seem to be leading leading to a number of exceedances that and really to be honest more more than a couple is is really not what we're looking for okay so farmers
4: can continue to use dimethoate in some cases but not as a post harvest
12: dip
11: that's correct so um dimethylate still, there are a range of other label uses, but particularly um, pre-harvest treatments and others that are fine. The one, the only use that we are suspending is post-harvest dip for tropical um, fruits.
12: What are those other uses?
11: Post harvest dip is used for um, interstate trade to manage fruit fly protection. There is an alternative use where it is used ahead of harvest, and that still um, will be allowed. But what I'd recommend to growers who have dimethylate is that they have a look at the um, changes to the label usage and continue to use it in line with, with what is um, permitted post this suspension. And does this uh, suspension have immediate effect? It will be in effect from tomorrow, yes.
4: Mango growers in the Darwin region are harvesting right now. Why did the APVMA decide this was the right time to make this
11: call? So we found out about um, the issues earlier this year and we've worked as quickly as we can to make a decision about whether we whether we needed to suspend or not. And this was sort of the earliest that it was reasonable to make a firmly science-based decision. Um, we thought it was important to make it straight away because there is a potential risk to human health in, in this situation that meant that we can't, we don't think it would be the responsible thing to do to leave it until later. Some people
4: with the Country Hour has spoken with in industry haven't been too happy with the amount of consultation with regards to this decision. Do you acknowledge that communication with industry could
12: have been better?
11: I think we've done quite a lot of work with industry along the way. Um, I think people always would like to have more and sometimes... What consultation consultation can mean listening, but it doesn't actually mean agreeing, and and that means that out of our process, people are often not happy. Um, we have consulted along the way um, with all of the affected industries and had had uh, good conversations, but in the end, this decision has to be based on science rather than on people's views or economic impacts.
1: That's Dr. Melissa McEwen, the Acting Chief Executive of the APVMA, speaking with Dan Fitzgerald. And that's from tomorrow. The use of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip in tropical fruit will be suspended. Make sure you check in with your local supplier on the change to that label use. There are other uses that are still allowed, but as a post-harvest dip, you will no longer be able to use dimethoate. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. If you'd like to send me a text message, you can. 0487 993 We'll check in with the Weather Bureau next. ABC Radio Emergency Information. If you're in the Jilago and Gnome areas near Townsville, there's a bushfire watch and act warning current. If you're located along Ossington Circuit and Serene Court, you should prepare to leave. A large, fast-moving fire continues to burn in the Serene Valley. Firefighters are working to contain the fire, but some properties are at risk. If you have a bushfire survival plan, you should follow it now. If you're in the surrounding areas of Jilago, Gnome, Elliott Springs and the Serene Valley, you're also advised to stay informed about this bushfire. That's repeating, a bushfire watch and act warning remains current for people in the Jilago and Gnome areas near Townsville. If you're located along Ossington Circuit and Serene Court, you should prepare to leave. You can find more information about this bushfire on the ABC North Queensland Facebook page and on the ABC Emergency website. Your next radio update will be here on ABC Radio at half past one or sooner if the situation changes.
8: During a bushfire, it's up to you to stay informed. Some fires may start so quickly that they threaten homes and lives within minutes. Don't wait for a warning to enact your bushfire survival plan. You can't rely on telephones and the internet for advanced warnings of bushfires. Your safest option is always to leave early. Keep listening to ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster.
1: It's 25 to 1. Let's check in with the weather bureau for more information about Queensland's weather. We're joined by forecaster Kimber Wong. Kimber, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I guess we're starting to see the effects of that uh, that heat as it ramps up across the state. Let's start in the uh, in the north. What are conditions like in that Townsville area at the moment?
13: Yeah, a really good question. Certainly a warm day today. Um, Our temperature is just about reaching its maximum for the day, around 28 degrees, and we have got a bit of a north-easterly sea breeze coming through, as is pretty typical for this time of year. So a bit of a fresher wind there, particularly along the coastline. And, um, look... Those temperatures, maximum temperatures around 28 degrees, not too far from the average for this time of year, but we are looking at temperatures rising over the next couple of days. And as a result of that, and that's not just confined to the Townsville area, it's really Mm -hmm. across um, most of the state, actually, that that warming trend is going to be quite noticeable. And um, as a result of those warming temperatures, we are looking at our fire dangers rising across um, various parts of the state, and in particular across um, southern Queensland over the next couple of days. And at this point, it looks like the warmest day this week for southern Queensland looks like it'll be either Wednesday for more inland areas or into the southeast corner more on Thursday as that sort of more continental dry and warm air mass makes its way into the southeast corner as well.
1: What are the winds doing with these temperatures as they rise?
13: A really good question. So along the coastline at the moment, we have got generally sort of a southeasterly wind, but with a a northeasterly sea breeze coming through during the afternoon periods at the moment. Uh, The winds a little further inland are generally tending more northeasterly. So once again, when we get those winds coming from um, the sort of general north direction, that's what's driving those warmer temperatures. But over the next couple of days, we will see those winds swinging around uh, more northwesterly ahead of a trough system that will cross the state. And uh, that will really drive those much warmer temperatures we're expecting across southern Queensland for the next couple of days, and then a wind change to um, spread across um, the state through the next couple of days in the wake of that trough, turning those winds more southwesterly, initially across the interior um, during the course of tomorrow, and then reaching um, the southeast corner into Thursday. Um, but it's a really interesting forecast, actually, a little later in the week, um, late Thursday, we're expecting a a cooler southeasterly wind change to arrive across far southeast Queensland, and that will decrease temperatures across the southeast corner quite significantly as we head into Friday. And in some places, um, the maximum temperatures on Thursday in the southeast Queensland will be uh, up to 10 degrees above average, and they will decrease by about 10 degrees into Friday. So a really noticeable cool change into Friday. And then those slightly more moderate conditions will spread further across the state as we head into the weekend.
1: So a very rapid cool change, but will there be any moisture along with that?
13: That's a really good question. So unfortunately at this stage it looks like um, very little moisture accompanying this wind change. Um, as we head into Friday there's a very slight chance we might see a couple of coastal showers mainly around the Sunshine Coast and um, Gurry Fraser Island as that change moves through. Um, but it's probably not until the weekend when um, those more, those slightly stronger southeasterly winds reach into the tropics and that sort of greater moisture content starts to build up and a few more showers will return to um, places like the Cassowary Coast and the Daintree as well through the weekend weekend into early next week.
1: And what about the, the coastal waters? What's the forecast for the coast?
13: Look, at this stage along the east coast, we've got um generally quite light winds and certainly for the tropics um, much lighter winds than what we were looking at um, last week and over the weekend. We haven't got any strong wind warnings for our boaties at the moment and that is set to continue for the next couple of days. However, as we move into Thursday, just late Thursday with that southerly wind coming up the coast, uh, we are looking at a strong wind warning for the Gold Coast waters and then that will spread to um, central and southern Queensland waters as we head into Friday as that change starts to move north. So I guess quite favourable boating conditions for the next couple of days with those lighter winds in play but um, deteriorating wind conditions as we head towards the end of the week and the weekend along the east coast Um, but definitely of course do check your local forecast if you are planning to take the boat out this week.
1: We will absolutely be doing that. Kimber Wong from the Weather Bureau thanks for your time on the Queensland Country Hour today. My pleasure. Thank you. And remember, you can get the latest emergency warnings online at abc.net.au slash emergency. Make sure you follow your local ABC's Facebook page for the latest warnings there as well and keep listening to the radio for the latest updates. You can also send me a text message. What are you doing to prepare for the hot weather this week? double nine three triple two. If you've got any tips or advice you'd like to share as we're heading into warmer days and potentially some uh, high-fire danger ratings as well. You're listening to the Country Hour. It is ooh, it's 20 to 1.
0: You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Now, you might be hearing all this talk about bushfires and being very grateful that it's not your place on the list of places being watched at the moment. But if it were, would you be ready There are new figures that show only one in ten Australians is prepared for a natural disaster, despite knowing they'll likely be hit by one. The Australian Red Cross says a well-prepared property is more likely to withstand a natural disaster like a bushfire, but there's also a psychological advantage in having an established emergency plan. Liz Gwynn prepared this report. Stuart Barry's home is surrounded by
14: nature and it's got beautiful views of Kunanyi, Mount Wellington and the River Derwent. Domestic and native chickens roam free and it's a really peaceful and quiet place despite only being a 15 minute drive from the centre of Hobart. It's a lifestyle Stuart and his wife Rosie always dreamt of, but they admit it does come with serious risks.
12: It's a real trade-off living at the bush. You get the beautiful lifestyle, but particularly in a world of climate change, it's also a very scary place to live. So it's very much in our mind about what's going on uh, in the world at the moment.
14: Conducting their own controlled backburns and removing firewood and other flammable material from around the home are just some of the ways the family is preparing now for summer, as well as stepping up firefighting capabilities.
12: So our initial tank's 17,000 litres, which is quite a decent size to fight a fire. The intention with tank number one is that as the fire is approaching, we'll use that to be outside and actively defending the house until the radiant heat gets so bad that we go inside. The reason we got a second water tank is we wanted to back up on the assumption that when the fire front hits and it's extreme heat, that that may stop functioning, it could melt, the pump might be gone at that point. So that's why we're putting in a second tank.
14: Stuart and Rosie have an emergency plan in place which they designed with the help of the Tasmania Fire Service, the Australian Red Cross and other guides they found online
12: which gives you all the prompts about what you need to be thinking about. Um, Things like personal effects, where are they going to go, what are you taking, what are you not taking, animals, things like that.
14: Stuart believes being prepared mentally and physically will help him and his family when they do face a severe weather-related emergency.
12: So you've got to be mentally prepared because the danger is that it gets here and it is that scary and then you panic and try and leave and it's too late at at that point. So we've got to be locked in ready and prepared for the horror of what it will be like
14: mother of one lisa villeneuve lives on the outskirts of south hobart and her property is also surrounded by bush she has a suitcase packed with essentials and will leave if a bushfire approaches but she also knows if her plans change for whatever reason she can call on her neighbors
1: for help having a really clear plan of what you're going to do takes a lot of the guesswork out so that um If there actually is a fire coming over, hopefully I'm already well away, I've got my stuff. Um, You know, it's just not nearly as stressful.
14: Lisa is part of the South Hobart Sustainable Community Group, which has been conducting mock emergency drills to ensure people are prepared for real-life disasters. Residents who took part in the exercise received a text message urging them to leave their home and head to an evacuation meeting point. It's really helped to highlight gaps when it comes to bushfire emergency plans in particular.
1: They definitely felt like having a test run especially, like getting to practice it was really beneficial Um, and thinking through um, what they would need to do, the different scenarios, but also getting a sense of how you feel when you get that text message, how your thinking changes. Um, So as much as I think that we can do to to try to anticipate how we might react in that situation is really helpful.
14: The Australian Red Cross says a well-prepared property is more likely to survive a natural disaster, but there's also a psychological advantage to having an established
7: emergency plan. You don't know exactly how you're going to react. It's a very stressful time. So if you've kind of done that testing psychologically and physically, been through some of those steps it's a little bit more both prepared but then you've already anticipated how you're going to start that recovery process.
14: A national survey found that while 66% of people anticipate an increase in severe weather-related emergencies such as heat waves, floods or a bushfire in
7: the coming years, actually only one in 10 people were prepared. The correlation therefore we need to build is encouraging people with that awareness now to take the next step to get prepared.
14: Across the country, there are 137 local government areas flagged by the Australian Red Cross as most at risk of hazards from heatwaves to bushfires, flood events and storms. People are encouraged to start preparing this Get Ready Week.
7: We encourage everyone to download the Get Prepared app, which is a fantastic tool, and you can do your app anytime. You can start and stop it, you can amend it. We do, though, of course, also have other resources on our website. So you can download the plan itself and very easily step through those steps together. Maybe you want to do that as a family or within your community or with your neighbour. And then we also have resources in other languages, including Auslan. Arabic and so on, some information sheets around why it's so important to get prepared and what are some of the simple steps that you can take.
1: And those first steps really can be simple. That is Australian Red Cross Chief of Staff Penny Harrison ending that story from Liz Gwynn. And as they said, there's the Get Prepared app. You can also head along to the ABC Emergency website, abc.net.au slash emergency. You can keep up to date with current incidents, but also get some really handy advice. Everything from if you've got somebody in your household that needs extra help, how you can help make sure they're ready in the case of an emergency to building your bushfire survival plan from scratch. It's all there. It just means you need to take action and get it done before disaster strikes. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. You can send me a text on 0487 993 and uh, <laughs> I've just got one text talking about surviving the heat this week. What am I doing about the heat this week? Going to Fiji. Well, I guess that's one way to manage it.
0: The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Is it time to give up on the idea that varroa mite can be eradicated? The Australian Honeybee Industry Council says it will strongly advocate for a transition to the management of the pest. But Chief Executive Danny Laferve says its member bodies had been divided on whether or not eradication attempts should continue. He told Kim Honan that recent detections have seen a shift towards the majority wanting a transition to management.
15: Our membership base has been divided and and so has many of the beekeepers across Australia as well uh, really divided opinions around whether it's feasible to continue with the the program or not. Um, Over the last week or so we've seen some significant developments in the response, a number of new detections um, but some uh, growing concerns around the Kempsey Cluster and even the Sydney Basin. Uh, We're also seeing a huge number of hives that are now caught in red zones and that if the response continues would be uh, euthanised, which would be quite significant to the New South Wales
6: industry. Okay so it's 10 member bodies uh, part of ARBIC and you're saying the majority now want to see a transition to management?
15: Yeah that's correct, 10 member bodies which include all the state uh, peak aprist associations across the state as well as some associations in the supply chain. Uh, and that forms uh, the opinions or the, our executives listen to those voices and, and give recommendations on our position to the CCUPP and the NMG. Now, we're just one of 26 uh, votes, uh, but it gives us a clear position where leading up until now, we, we've been very much on the fence.
6: And what difference do you think this new stance or position by Arbic will have on beekeepers?
15: Uh, well, it doesn't really change a lot for the beekeepers on the ground. We've still got a large amount of beekeepers suffering that are caught up in this response that are copying it uh, in terms of financially and emotionally. Uh, but what it does do is, is send a strong signal to the other members of the SEP uh, that the honeybee industry is is um, keen to look at ways to transition to uh, living with the mines uh, and looking at how we're going to move forward just to really give our beekeepers some really clear directions so they can make decisions on the ground because at the moment it's quite messy, um, very stressful and emotional for those guys and they're unable to really see a clear pathway forward for their future.
6: What do you think ARBIC's position will really have on how the SEP or the NMG see that transition to management? Do you think it will weigh heavily on, on other industry bodies that the honey industry feels this way?
15: Oh, look, I would hope that each of those individual parties would make their own assessments based on, on the information put before them and, and don't make political decisions. Uh, but certainly if the honeybee industry is is backing a, a transition, it certainly does carry some weight. Um, but we've been able to clearly articulate the reasons why we believe that's um, the case It should transition, uh, and we've demonstrated that in those meetings.
6: What are ARBIC's position reasons for wanting a move to management?
15: We just see a a few issues like uh, the unexplained Kempsey uh, cluster, um, Sydney Basin. We're seeing it getting very close to significant national parks across the eastern side of the Newcastle zone. Obviously, the number of highs that are now poured up across all the new uh, blue zone detections has become quite large. Uh, And we're also seeing just the size of the whole response. It's almost doubled in size in the last couple of months. Uh, and we see real issues around being able to resource boots on the ground to be able to continue, um, as well as the cost to all the industries and government parties in, in completing the eradication.
6: Could a decision on transition to management be made as early as this week?
15: Uh, look, I, it could quite possibly, but uh, we've, we've had many weeks, nearly four weeks now of indecision. Uh, and so I'd hate to, to pin all my hopes on a decision this week. Um, but I'd like to think that we can get some clarity on what this looks like moving forward um, as soon as possible.
6: So, you're hoping that a decision to management is made as soon as possible?
15: We'd like to see some clarity, absolutely.
6: That's Danny
1: Leferve, the Chief Executive of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council with Kim Honan. And the National Management Group is due to meet tomorrow. No doubt Kim will bring us the latest on that meeting when it comes to hand. It's 9 to 1. This is the Queensland Country Hour. And before 1 o'clock, we're going to take a look at what's happening, some changes in sheep markets. And I will take you to Roma for the prices there When we're talking about markets, one of the the markets people are keeping a very close eye on is, of course, the global grain market, particularly the impact of Ukraine's conflict with Russia. There is an economic war going on that's being fought just as hard as the military side of that action. Despite generous financial support from its allies, Ukraine needs to keep its national coffers full if it's going to continue to fund the war which means it needs to be able to export its farm goods. There have been major developments on that front, as the BBC's Paul Moss reports.
16: Ukraine is famously known as the world's breadbasket, and that's because of its vast agricultural exports. Of course, Russia's invasion made it much harder to export. Now, there was an agreement with Russia to allow the export of cargo through the Black Sea unmolested, but that fell apart. Then Ukraine increased exports down the Danube River. Russia's response, though, was to attack Danube harbour facilities with missiles and drones. It happened again on Sunday night. So a lot of goods are being exported through neighbouring countries, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania. But farmers in those countries said a lot of the Ukrainian grain was actually being sold locally, undercutting their own crops and hitting their sales. The European Union responded by banning the sale of many agricultural products in those countries and also in nearby Bulgaria, saying the goods could transit through but mustn't be sold locally. Ukraine obviously wasn't too happy and the European Union has now lifted the ban for Ukrainian exports. However, Poland, Slovakia, and Hungary haven't taken this lying down. They've unilaterally said they're still not going to allow the sale of Ukrainian agricultural goods. They're going to continue to ban them. And that really is a drastic step. It's completely against European Union rules. You know, member states are not allowed to have their own import export rules. It's also a major crack in the alliance between those countries and Ukraine. The German agricultural minister, Cem Özdemir, said only Russia would benefit from this. This is a part-time solidarity, I would say. When it suits, there is solidarity, and when it doesn't, there isn't solidarity. I regret that very much, because the one person who profits from that is Vladimir Putin. He's rubbing his hands over this. That should not be the goal of anyone here. Okay, so that's the German point of view. What about the response from Ukraine? They've been pretty confrontational. Ukraine has just announced it's going to take legal action against the countries which have banned its goods. Now, this is really drastic. Bear in mind two of the countries it says it's going to sue, Slovakia and Poland have been really solid military and political allies of Ukraine in its fight against Russia. All right, so simple question but crucial to what seems increasingly bitter what happens next? Well, Ukraine's bringing its case through the World Trade Organization. I should say this moves extremely slowly. One thing to note, Poland and Slovakia have elections coming up. The ruling parties want to be seen to be standing up for their people. So Some might hope once the elections are over, the governments there will be more prepared to compromise. But there's no guarantee of that. First of all, there's a good chance that the party that's going to win in Slovakia will be Smer, which is an ally of Russia opposed to Ukraine. And Hungary, of course, has never been much of a friend to Ukraine. Its Prime Minister Viktor Orban is close to Vladimir Putin.
1: A complex situation indeed. That's the BBC's Paul Moss with Robin Brand.
0: You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: You can send me a text, zero four eight seven double nine three triple two. We heard earlier the push from the honey industry to move from eradication to management when it comes to varroa mite. I've received a text from Brandt at Port Douglas who says, at the moment, varroa mite's just in New South Wales, so it stuns me that there's talk of changing from an eradication footing. Why on earth should the rest of Australia put itself at risk because New South Wales beekeepers want to throw in the towel? Makes more sense to keep the pest in New South Wales and don't let it spread. T- another example of New South Wales dictating terms to the rest of Australia. Thanks for sharing your view, Brandt. You can share yours as well, 0487 993. I will point out that the Australian Honey Bee Industry Council does have membership from across the states, not just New South Wales, and it seems a majority of those members are now leaning towards management over eradication. Your views, always welcome here at the Queensland Country Hour. Now, Mead and Livestock Australia has adjusted its market parameters to capture sheep selling for under $10 a head. Now, historically, those parameters have been set to limit the reporting of sheep selling under that value. But where the market is operating, they're being rolled down to include them for as low as $1. Stephen Bignall is MLA's market information manager. He says the change had to be made to reflect reality.
17: We have been seeing that growing number of animals under $10 and, and have taken the steps to ensure we're reporting it. It, it. it has been being noted in the commentary by LMOs, but it hasn't been showing up in the market report.
11: You know, just from that anecdotal information that's flowing through, what sort of numbers of sheep are getting $10 or less?
17: It could be about a 1,000 and, and that would make it about 3%.
11: That's across the country? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And you're not sure, I mean, obviously you've got to wait for the numbers to start flowing through this week. You've only made the decision and it's been implemented today, but it could have an impact on the indicators. Is that what you're feeling?
17: It won't have an in- impact on certain indicators. So the trade lamb, heavy lamb, light lamb, unlikely, but it will could impact Merino mutton and restocker our indicators, but not to a material degree. And I, I think we'll catch up in, in a week to see how that, that the new change has flowed through to the indicators and what the sort of current indicators are operating at and, and any delta.
1: That is MLA Steve Bignall with Belinda Varaschetti. Now, groups representing sheep farmers will meet this week to discuss how to help those producers who are suffering under these low prices. President of Wool Producers Australia, Steve Harrison, says assistance is needed for some.
15: Certainly, when we have a drought, we look at rate subsidies. We see that as the most equitable um, way of relief, I suppose, some small way of relief. So whether or not there could be a levy that could be reduced by MLA to help sheep and lamb producers going forward, we've certainly got to look at something because, yeah, the current rates for sheep and lamb are pretty dismal.
4: So so that's something you want to bring to the discussion, look at where assistance can go to sheep producers right now who are who are suffering through poor prices.
15: Yeah, I think that's the most equitable way forward. But, you know, there's um, 35 on the Zoom apparently, so I'm sure there'll be some other potential ideas there rather than mine. But um, we've got to try something... Um, yeah, you know, high lambing percentages are great at times, but you know, in our situation, when we're very dry, they're often a bit of a curse. So, um, and current prices don't help.
1: They certainly don't seem to be. No Warwick sale today, so it's over to the Roma store with David Friend.
15: A small increase in numbers at Roma to 38.56, cattle drawn from the Warrego, Western New South Wales and the local supply area. All processors, backgrounders and feedlots in attendance and operating, with buyers showing preference to quality lines. At this interim report, lightweight yielding steers, 0 to 200 kilos, made to 290. Lightweight yielding steers 200 to 280 kilos, averaged 268 and made to 295. Yielding steers 330 to 400 kilos to feed, made to 284 to average 272. Steers 400 kilos to 480 kilos to feed, averaged 274 and sold to 283. Growing steers 500 to 600 kilos, topped at 240 to average 238.
1: At your country hour, it's one o'clock.